I remember walking onto the set, feeling this incredible energy between me and, and my colleagues. We were going to do something that no one else had done. In 2016, Marlon Daniel was moments away from making history. Marlon is a conductor, and he was about to perform an opera no one had heard in over 230 years. The Anonymous Lover. He had worked for months to bring it back to life, and now it was finally showtime. When you walk on that stage, people start to clap. You feel like, okay, now it's time to do it, you know, and really time to, to set this monument in place. Marlon got to his podium in front of the entire orchestra and cast, took a deep breath, raised his baton, and ushered in the first notes. And starting those chords, bum 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 bum, bum 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 it's just so heroic. And D major is a happy and joyful key. You felt like you were taking people back to the time when this was done. Performing this opera for Marlon, it was more than just work. It was personal. Because this opera was the lost work of Joseph Ballone, a master composer who played for Marie Antoinette, was basically roommates with Mozart, and was a black man like Marlon who'd found his way into the uber-white classical music space. I discovered Joseph Ballone through a friend of mine when I was an undergrad and told me about this incredible composer that he said influenced Mozart. I'd been studying classical music all my life, and uh, I did not believe him. I'm like, if there was somebody, a black man who influenced Mozart, wouldn't we all know this information? Right? I mean, back in the 18th century, when classical music was just music, Joseph Ballone was the hitmaker. He was right alongside Beethoven, Haydn, and Mozart, and he paved the way for people like Marlin. And his musical genius is just one of the things he's known for. I mean, this guy had the hit-making skills of Beyonce, the athletic prowess of Serena Williams, and the revolutionary spirit of Che Guevara, all rolled into one person. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is They Did That, a different kind of history show. I'm Takara Small. Today, the story of the 18th century Renaissance man, Joseph Boulogne Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Joseph Boulogne led a really big life, but his beginnings were anything but that. He began on the islands. That's what struck me about it. He was born literally on a plantation, sugar plantation in Guadeloupe in the French Caribbean. Joseph was the son of that plantation owner and an enslaved Senegalese woman. But Joseph's father always viewed him as his rightful son and heir. In 1752, when he was just seven, Joseph's father decided he and his mom would go to France. I talked with Marlon Daniel, whose love for classical music spills out in his encyclopedic knowledge of the genre. I wanted to know more about Joseph Ballone from someone who really knew everything there was to know about him. So for me, 18th century France, 
this has been heavily influenced by Hollywood, so please don't judge me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, okay, big hair, lots of jewelry, massive parties, mansions. Oh, yeah. It was the place to be. France was the place to be. It also was the age of enlightenment, free thinking. Everything was going on in France at this time, and that was really an extraordinary thing. Joseph's dad seemed to know this and wanted his son to get in on the action. He definitely wanted him to be in society. He wanted the best for his son. And he, when he put him in Le Boisier, that was the school. That's like putting you up in Cambridge. Anybody who was anyone's child was there. So Joseph is in France going to school with the creme de la creme of the French aristocracy. And his dad knows if you really want to be with the elites, there's one thing Joseph has to learn. To be a gentleman and one of the elites, you had to be a fencer, but he was a natural-born fencer, as they say. Forget about tennis, golf, and polo. Back in the 18th century, fencing was the sport of the rich. And Joseph was a natural. I mean, he immediately starts whooping butt on the fencing court. He's taking on all the kids at school. And pretty soon, word of his skills got out. I mean, to the point that a grown man reached out to Joseph's dad to challenge Joseph to a duel. He wrote a letter to his father saying he challenges the Leboisier's mulatto, which is really kind of another river, the N-word, to a duel. And his father especially got offended and said, you, you kick his butt, I'm going to buy you a carriage. <laughs> I mean, I don't condone violence, but I'm with Joseph's dad on this one. And did he do it? Did he oh, kick his butt? Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> that was the start of many butts to be kicked and many names to be taken. From there on, it was only up. And how old is he at this point where he's like beating people twice his age, he's kicking butts, taking names? Yes, when he just was still in school. With the fencing, he became the greatest fencer in France, if not all of Europe. But he could also ride a horse like competitively, allegedly shoot an apple off your head with a gun. Right. No big deal. Swim the Seine River with one hand tied behind his back. This man, the things that he did, you were like, who is he? He was a legend. It sounds like he was a legend. He was a legend. He could do anything and everything. So, Ballone is basically kicking butt at everything he does. He becomes such a good fencer that he's even awarded the title of Chevalier. It's the French equivalent of being knighted. He spends his teenage years fencing and handing out ass whoopings to anyone dumb enough to challenge him to a duel. But as this is happening, there's another thing going on in the streets of Paris. Music is filling the air. It was the most happening place ever. Violin and string instruments at this time were pretty much all rage too. This is like the birth time of the symphony, and you had the orchestra all being created at this time. And it turns out, Joseph had another skill hidden up his sleeve. To be a gentleman, you had to do all an instrument. You had to have all of the traits that will make you the perfect gentleman. And I think that being a prodigious violinist at this time really turned up the volume. Yeah, Ballone had also been studying the violin, and quietly becoming one of the best violinists of the day. Marlon thinks that his skill on the fencing court might have something to do with it. His athleticism helped his music. They said that 
his bow strokes was like actually him using the rapier, you know, him using his sword, and that, that helped him in some way, and somehow they were connected. Ballone is so good at the violin that he even gets invited to play one of Paris's biggest stages. The fact that his one of his teachers and supporters, Gosek, invited him to play in his orchestra, which is the best orchestra. So Ballone has his musical debut at the Hotel de Soubise, and people kind of freak out. When you have a big debut and you're presented on such a large platform, probably the most prestigious platform in France, it made a stir in the music world and it made people very envious because his exotic looks and he was tall and handsome. He's like the complete package. The package and a bag of chips. (laughs) (laughs) When we come back from the break, how Joseph Ballone used his violin skills to get him an in with the queen herself. There's no better party than the queen's party. And he was pretty much a regular, which also sparked a lot of, um, hmm, let's put it this way. She was a very young queen compared to her husband. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We all have questions that keep us up at night. The self-help industry tells us they have answers. As a journalist and a skeptic, I'm not so sure. So I've set out to talk to people who have gone to radical lengths to find answers. I'm Katherine Rowland. From Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. On season one, we're diving deep into the portal of plant medicine and psychedelics. Listen to Seeking wherever you get your podcasts. So from that surprise day on the stage, Joseph began to like carve out his own lane in classical music. Yeah. What did that trajectory look like? What was that ascent like? Basically, he was a rock star now. He had already been an, a superstar athlete, but then when you find out that the guy's a rock star, because at that time, we're talking classical music is the pop music of the day. Okay, okay. So that is the thing that everyone listens it. to. It, that's what everybody listens to. But you had to go to like private parties to listen to this. You had to be invited. And he was being invited to all the parties. For our diehard listeners, you might remember that James Hemmings was in Paris around this exact same time. It's extremely likely the two crossed paths at one of these parties. In fact, Hemmings is said to have cooked for Boulogne at the Hotel de Longjack. But of all the parties of the day, one person was known for having the most rowdy, outrageous parties of them all. There's no better party than the Queen's party. And he was pretty much a regular, which also sparked a lot of, um, hmm, let's put it this way. She was a very young queen compared to her husband. This party-loving queen is none other than Marie Antoinette. But when she wasn't lavishly entertaining, she was taking up hobbies of her own. One that she shared with Joseph. Marie Antoinette was actually a very good musician. She wanted to 
be with playing with the best musicians, learn from the best musicians. So he was giving her lessons allegedly. And you know, the talk of that one, that didn't take too long to put two and two together. We don't know if anything happened between Malone and Marie Antoinette, but we know that he was one of her favorite musicians. And she wasn't the only one. People all over France were lining up to see him in concert. It's like a new album dropping. They want to be there. They want to be a part of it. And he would be pumping it out, especially with this Merckx for violin. Hearing how Joseph was basically that guy, a virtuoso making hit after hit that had Paris waiting for his next drop, I wanted to hear some of his work. So I asked Marlon to share one of his recordings of a piece of balloons that he thought perfectly captured his otherworldly talent so we could listen together. Here we go. We're listening now to this symphony number two in D major, Opus 11 number two by Joseph Ballon. It's a great piece and it just puts you in a happy mood. It, it really does. It does, like, it's just like a sunny, bright, happy yes. day. That's what it feels like listening to it. Like, it sounds like falling in love. I can see how someone who's in love, especially in that those early stages where it's yes. like infatuation. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I get that vibe. I think he loved opera like most composers because opera is like just like a telenovela but with music. But it's a multimedia. You know, you have dance, you have singing. What else is there? Acting also. I'm really surprised at how connected I feel to the piece, and this is the first time I'm ever hearing it. Well, yeah, I think you described it really, really, really well. Everything about classical music is painting a picture, and if you understand that picture if you, by just listening to it, the composer has succeeded. Joseph Ballone would create his own genre of classical music, the symphony concertants. Kind of like a rap battle, but with dueling violinists backed by an orchestra. It was a big deal. Joseph Ballone, he was a incredibly innovative composer. He really stretches the way people played violin. He just revolutionized that in the way people played high on the fingerboard. And he was just a monster at this and built this whole new style of violin playing that not even Beethoven or Mozart came even close to. Fill me in on his connection to Mozart and their come up together. Mozart came to Paris when he was a a child prodigy. He made a big hit and he returned back to Paris to make his triumph. But no, 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 that wasn't happening because there was Joseph Boulogne at the time and he was doing everything. Mozart couldn't even get a job. That's wild. He really had the music world in a chokehold. They, at one point in time, they lived in the same housing residence. And I don't know about you, but I live in an apartment complex and I can hear everybody in the corridor. So there's a thing said that basically Mozart listened to a lot of what San George was doing and he started to change all of his pieces at the time to make them in the French style and French flavor. And he used this very famous passage that was considered for that day such an innovation that he would do this. And San George, two years before, and while Mozart was living in that same residence, actually had written 
a set of violin concertos. And throughout the first violin concerto, he uses that exact same phrase that Mozart happens to know a couple of years later. So there's a lot of speculation on that part about, you know, mm-hmm. who actually did what. <laughs> Interesting coincidence. I'm not saying he thiefed it, as they would say in Bahamas, but every composer were influenced by other composers of the day. It was natural, but that just puts you in a spot where you say, huh, all of these original ideas that you are attributing to someone might have actually come from someone else. Even with all his success, Ballone had one more thing to cross off his list. A big, prestigious job that would cement his place in music history. The Académie Royale de Musique, a.k.a. the Paris Opera, has a history of being a creative hotspot. It was the birthplace of ballets and operas that made France stand out as the heart of art in Europe. But by 1776, it was struggling. Audiences were dwindling, and it needed a creative facelift. Joseph Ballone knew he was the man for the job, and he put his name in for consideration to be its creative director. But his skills weren't the only thing being judged for the position. So there's this moment when Joseph is reminded that no matter how talented he is, how capable he is in this world, and I think this is something anyone who's a person of color will relate to, that he will still always be an outsider. Yes. Tell me about it. Yeah, that's probably one of the most hurtful stories because there's always that reminder. Uh, Joseph Bologna was up for the being the director, musical director of the Paris Opera. And three divas of the opera and ballet, they decided that they were going to get together and protest. And they basically said that their sensibilities couldn't be subjected to the orders of a mulatto. So basically, that N-word's not going to tell me what to do while I'm here. So he was good enough to teach the queen, but these three wanted nothing to do with him. I bet that gossip around town about him and Marie Antoinette didn't help his cause either. Now, this job was owned by the king. He was in control of it. And so all those myths about him or maybe pressure from his wife, Marie Antoinette, saying, this is the job for Joseph. This is what we need. He's the greatest musician in France. It's natural that it would go to them. However, after they wrote this letter, which was probably a very calculated letter, and who they wrote it to, it drew a light to his relationship with the queen. Such a clever letter that if you're going to fight this, this is where it's going to look bad for you. Why are you fighting for this black man unless there's something hanky-panky going on? And Joseph, being the gentleman that he is, he withdrew his name from the pool so that it would not reflect badly on the queen and probably badly on himself. And subsequently, the king did not give the job at all. No job for anybody. They thought maybe somebody else was going to come in or whatever, but no, close this down. And he did everything right. He got the right education. He had the skills. He was beloved by the people in the right circles. Mm -hmm. And it still wasn't enough. Still wasn't enough. But that's how racism works, you see. It's insidious. Unfortunately, it's insidious. Um, But this didn't stop his musical work. This didn't prevent him from continuing to make music, right? Like, he still 
hammering it out, banging on. Yeah, he's still hammered out, banging on, but also at this time, he becomes very political. After the break, Joseph Malone adds revolutionary to his decorated resume and takes a stand against the aristocrats he'd been chummy with for years. As a Black person, he was faced with these laws and rules and changes to not give him the freedoms that are for everyone. So he had to fight for these freedoms. I mean, he had no choice. Stay with us. Warning, this podcast contains juicy tales of a super dysfunctional family. Brothers betraying brothers, friends becoming enemies, and a mother trying her best to keep everything from falling apart. No, this isn't a reality TV rewatch. I'm Dan Jones, your host, and this is one of my all-time favorite true stories. Join me on a trip to the Middle Ages to meet history's most dangerous dynasty, the Plantagenets. This season, the plots are thicker, the ambitions greater, and the betrayals are even more devious in the epic saga of the family that shaped our world. From something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is history. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 2. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because of his talent and money, Joseph had been able to live a life of privilege for a long time. By many, he was considered a part of the French aristocracy. But he also experienced plenty of messed up things because of his race. I mean, as a kid, he had to take down a grown man who questioned his fencing abilities. He's denied a job he's qualified for because he's black. Add some societal injustice to the mix, and it's not surprising that Joseph started identifying with the ideals of the French Revolution. So, at this time, the French Revolution starts brewing, and everyone's lives are being impacted, including Joseph's. Yes. Like, what do, what impact does that have on him, on his music career, on his life as a black person? He could not be on one side and could not be on the other. As a black person, a person of color, he was faced with these laws and rules and changes to actually put people down and not give them the freedoms that are for everyone. So he had to fight for these freedoms. I mean, he had no choice. He was traveling to London and other places to preach free rights. So he was very involved with civil activities. He went from preaching to getting in on the real action in 1790. Joseph joined the Volunteer Revolutionary Army, rose to the rank of colonel, and got to work. The task they gave him was like the impossible task, you know, govern all, all the black soldiers. But these black soldiers were following him like nobody's business, and they were leading from success to success. This would be Europe's first all-black battalion, and would be known as La Légion Saint-Georges, a nod to Joseph's official title of Chevalier de Saint-Georges. We don't know the ins and outs of his battles, but I can only imagine that Joseph used the confidence he had on stage to rally his troops. 
On the outskirts of the battlefield, he'd mount his horse, gas up the soldiers with a fiery pep talk, and charge into the scrum, sword raised in the air. The French resistance as a whole would see their mission move forward in 1792. They overthrew the monarchy and started rounding up aristocrats to make them pay for the mistreatment of the people of France. Joseph's aristocratic past would come back to haunt him a year later when he was arrested and sent to prison under suspicions that he was still loyal to the French monarchy. His time fighting for the cause didn't help him at all. His association with the aristocrats they brought that as evidence against you. You see, you, you were there on so-and-so date. You practically lived in the palace. They totally discarded all the good that he had done. I think he really felt betrayed by that. And he was certainly caught off guard because he was doing all the right things and trying to, to liberate the people and all that stuff, you know, this France. Egalité, equality, liberté, the whole French symbols. And then being arrested for the very same thing that you were fighting for, under the same people. <laughs> it's, it's just ridiculous. 18th century prison was no joke. Joseph spent a year there in the middle of the period known as the Reign of Terror. He was in a cold, dark cell, and just outside in the public square, mass executions were happening on the daily. Joseph sat there, day in and day out, hearing the slice of the guillotine, not knowing if that day it was going to be his turn. But luck was on his side, and he survived to see the revolutionaries call it quits on the killings. Many of his former friends, though, like the Queen, weren't as fortunate. Joseph made it out with his life, but he wouldn't walk away completely unscathed. His music... His life's work would be lost to history thanks to France's incoming leader. A lot of scholars, they said that Napoleon was so jealous of Joseph Malone that he was actively part of his erasure. When Paris is burning, Paris is burning. And a lot of the things that were being played in France at that time was Joseph Malone. So when you're burning stuff, grab that first. A total shame when you think about how that impacted music history. Joseph, who put France on the map when it came to classical music, would be eclipsed by and compared to people he influenced. Today, he's sometimes known as the Black Mozart. But Marlon doesn't think that title is fitting. Okay. Well, first of all, that whole title didn't come around until, I think, probably the 20th century. A really close friend of mine's father told him, the something of something is always the nothing of nothing. Meaning that if you have someone as talented as Mozart and you say somebody's a copy of it, you're never good as the original. Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. I hate that title in a way because we do this all the time where it's like, that's the Indian version of Brad Pitt or that's exactly. the Korean version of Spielberg. But not Brad Pitt. And somehow it kind of pushes him down and his legacy down because in turn, Mozart should have been called the White Santa George or the White Joseph Ballone. <laughs> I'll accept any of those. <laughs> he was like a jack of all trades and a master of all of them. He did things, and not only in the music, but things that just made him extraordinary for the time. 
Joseph Malone's story is the kind of twist that makes my inner geek really happy. And it feels good to finally give him the acknowledgement he deserves because the aristocrats didn't appreciate him, Napoleon detested him, and society completely ignored him. I never really felt like classical music was designed for me, which is fine, it's fine, but in spite of that, I still enjoy it. The Balone story does something a little special though. It shows that classical music wasn't just made for people like me, it was made by people who look like me. And that's why this story is so important. To learn more about Marlon and the incredible work he's doing to keep the sounds of Joseph Malone alive, check out today's show notes for links to his website and to the festival he created to honor Malone. Next time on They Did That. Now, this was a time when there's no recorded uh, documents about someone actually successfully repairing a hole in the heart. But Dr. Williams knew if, if this doesn't happen, this young man will die. They Did That is presented by me, Takara Small. This episode was written and produced by Tiffany Walker. Our associate producer is Serena Chow. This episode was edited by Jasmine Romero. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. Engineering and sound design by Rick Kwan. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. And our original theme song is by Cedric Wilson.